Acts chapter 21 is where we will be starting tonight. Round about verse 15 or so. But the title of our message here tonight is, When Ministry Goes Sideways. Don't go, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Those were the words of warning spoken to missionary James Chalmers on the eve of his departure to Papua New Guinea. And he went anyway. James Chalmers, though, never expected to find himself in the steamy rainforests of the South Pacific preaching the gospel to the heathen. That is because for most of his youth, he headed up a street gang of thugs. And the story goes that one Sunday, young James Chalmers and his gang were looking for trouble. And so they decided they would go into a church service and cause some disruption. So they came in with alcohol on their breath and they sat in on the back row and tried to stir up any kind of trouble they could. But Chalmers was mesmerized because as he sat there listening to the preacher, it was a date with destiny. As the preacher spoke about the gospel and the Great Commission, uh, James Chalmers leaned in and listened with wonder. The pastor there that day spoke about the mission field in Fiji and he implored, I wonder if there is a boy here who will have the courage to take Christ to the cannibals. And Chalmers knew that the Holy Spirit was tugging at his heart and soon after that, he gave his life to Christ and he surrendered to the call of ministry. And so in 1877, he arrived at New Guinea. He was going to take the light of the gospel into some of the darkest corners of the jungle. And along the way, he saw some great moves of God. He saw entire villages replace human sacrifice with worship of Christ. They replaced cannibalism with communion. The natives had a name for him. They called him Tamate, which means king. Author Robert Louis Stevenson, yeah, the man who wrote Treasure Island, spent several weeks traveling with Chalmers. And here's what he wrote of him. He said, he is a rowdy, but he is a hero. He took the islands by storm and was the most brave and interesting man I've ever met. In 1900, he was forced to go on a furlough in Australia because his wife Jane had contracted malaria. She died there from that disease, but James soldiered on. And when he announced his plan to go deeper into the wilds of New Guinea, once again his friends tried to dissuade him. Well, he wouldn't hear of it. In fact, here's what he wrote in his journal, one of the last entries of James Chalmers. He said, quote, I cannot rest and so many thousands of savages without a knowledge of Christ near us. And so on Easter Sunday, 1901, James Chalmers and another missionary named Oliver Tompkins went ashore Gorabari Island to reach a cannibalistic tribe, and they were never seen again. A rescue party that was later dispatched learned that Chalmers and his friend had actually been killed by the tribe they were trying to reach. Chalmers went to his death defying the advice of friends because he was a man called by God, a man on a mission. I don't think he had a death wish, but he did have a determination to fulfill God's will and God's call on his life that maybe few of us 
can understand. So Chalmers was cut from the same cloth as the Apostle Paul. Because in Acts chapter 21, we read the words of Paul in verse 13. He says there, For I am ready not only to be bound, but also die at Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Now, as we studied Acts 21 last week, we saw how Paul's friends tried in vain to deter him from going to Jerusalem, much like the friends of James Chalmers tried to dissuade him from going into the jungle. You'll remember that the prophet Agabus predicted that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be arrested. Well, that wasn't enough to deter Brother Paul. And here we come to the second half of chapter 21 and into chapter 22, and we're going to see how everything begins to go bad, begins to go wrong for Paul as he comes to Jerusalem. And I think that this episode has three lessons to teach any servant of God. It's three lessons we all need to know because here we see what happens when ministry goes sideways. The first lesson that I see here tonight is, number one, don't be surprised when the obedient are accused. Don't be surprised when the obedient are accused. Notice verse 15, chapter 21. The Bible says this, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our custom. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So this is a mix of good news and bad news when Paul comes to Jerusalem. He arrives there, he's greeted by James and the leaders of the church there, and after he recounts his many adventures on the mission field, we see that Paul is slammed with false reports concerning his ministry. We read there that thousands of Jews in Jerusalem had been poisoned against Paul, and there was a nasty rumor going about that he was teaching Jewish Christians to forsake everything about their culture, to abandon their holidays and their dietary restrictions and the Sabbath observance and so on. Now, Paul was very clear that no one could earn their salvation by works of the law, but he makes that very clear in Galatians and Romans, that it's all about the grace of God. It's not about following a list of rules and regulations. But Paul did take great care in his ministry not to offend his Jewish brothers by disregarding their customs. For instance, you remember that if Paul was so against the Jewish law, then why then in Acts 16 did he have his protege, Timothy, a Greek, circumcised? So apparently 
These kind of facts didn't matter to Paul's enemies. They only heard what they wanted to. They had made up their minds that Paul was a false teacher. And they had sown these lies and now they had come up like weeds. It makes me think of what Mark Twain said years ago. He said, a lie can travel twice around the world before the truth has her boots laced up. And isn't that true? How deflating this must have been for Paul to hear. Uh, he had done more for the gospel, done more to advance the name of Jesus Christ, and yet it was his own people who stabbed him in the back and told lies about him and poisoned others against him. What I see about this friend is that don't be surprised if the obedient are accused of things. Write it down, my friend. If you're going to do a good work for God, uh, there's always going to be somebody who thinks they know better, who has the whole truth, and they are going to be there to wag their tongue. Remember Jesus? When Jesus cast out a demon in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees were there and they said, oh, He's doing this by the power of Satan. Uh, they said that Jesus was a demoniac. When the Holy Spirit arrived in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, they saw Peter and the other apostles filled with the Holy Ghost, and the detractors were there, and they said, look at those guys, they're filled with new wine. Friend, I can attest to you that some of the most hurtful comments ever made to me or about me came from the church. It's a sad reality, but don't be surprised when those who have been obedient to the call of God are the ones who are accused. I saw a church sign a while back as I was driving through the community. It said it all. The church sign read, Gossip, slander, and lies are the devil's radio. Don't be his DJ. Charles Swindoll wrote this, and I think it's worthy of our attention. He said, quote, There is a weapon that is more powerful than any other weapon known to man. It has been known to start wars, ruin friendships, destroy reputations, split churches, and drive many good men out of the ministry. This weapon is not the atomic bomb, but it has the same kind of power to unleash untold devastation. It is the tongue. The local church is one of Satan's favorite seedbeds for growing a weedy crop of slander and gossip. He tills through our thoughts like soil, mixing in a shovel full of good intentions, a bag full of prejudice, and a few pellets of pride. Then he scatters an accusing word here, an inflammatory comment there, and he waits for them to germinate. Billy Graham was a man who dealt with tremendous slander and criticism in his heyday. I read that during one of his crusades that he was having in Germany, that a reporter came to him with a loaded question. Here's what the reporter said to Dr. Graham. He said, Mr. Graham, the communists are spreading lies about you. They are saying that you're a hypocrite and that you have caroused around the nightclubs with money that you collected from your crusades and you left without paying your hotel bill. Mr. Graham, how would you like to answer that? Sounds like some of the reporters who go to the media briefings at the White House and ask their questions. Here's how Dr. Graham replied. He said, Sir, the devil starts many deliberate lies about God's servant. 
And a lot of poor folk who believe the lies will pass them on as gossip. I make it a point never to answer gossip if I can help it. The devil would like nothing more than to have me stop bringing people to Christ by trying to track down every slanderous lie spoken about me. And I think that that is a good word of wisdom for ministry because we can't waste our time and our energies constantly dealing with detractors and critics and people who sit on the sideline and never do anything, never serve and never give and never get in the fight. All they know how to do is stir up stuff and get on the phone and talk and complain on Facebook. We, if we spend our time trying to chase down those folk, people in the ministry would never get anything done. And if you are going to do God's will, then His approval is a whole lot more important to the servant of God than what a few people in the world might say, a few wagging tongues. And I've decided a long time ago, uh, let them talk. Uh, God will fight my battle for me. Uh, he knows how to take care of that situation. And more can be accomplished through prayer than by the energy of my flesh. So we see number one, when ministry goes sideways, hey, don't be surprised when the obedient are accused. And then number two, I want you to notice this tonight. When ministry goes sideways, don't be stopped when the opposition attacks. Now, you'll notice here, that James and company cook up a compromise that they think will help Paul smooth things over with the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And what it would involve would Paul openly participating in a Jewish ceremony. Look at what verse 23 says. They said, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. So what we see here is that four men in the Jerusalem church had taken a Nazarite vow. If you want to know more about that, you can find those details in Numbers chapter 6. It was a time of separation, but at the time when that came to an end, they were allowed to cut their hair. And so what James and the rest of the church leaders encouraged Paul to do was, hey Paul, take these guys up to the temple. The time of their vow is over. Pay the fee for them. Participate in this with them. And people will see that you're not against the Jewish traditions. Now, the intent behind this is well-meaning because people would see, as Paul interacted there, that he could live for Christ and also be a Jew. But when they got to the temple, that's when everything went haywire. Look at what happens in verse 26. And then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went in to the temple giving notice to the days of purification that would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Him in the temple, watch this, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came from the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains And he inquired uh, who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When they came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying away with him. Now, as you read this, you see that The whole situation for Paul goes absolutely sideways as he heads up to the temple to try and do this right thing. And that got me to thinking, have you ever tried to do the right thing for the right reason and then all of a sudden it backfires on you? Reminds me of a story that I heard about a guy who worked for the post office. And he went and he picked up a stamped letter from a mailbox and the address said, To God. Postman decided, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I might as well open it up and read it. And as he opened the letter, here's what it said. Dear God, this is Edna. I'm 86 years old. I'm a widow living on Social Security. And last week, some thugs stole my purse and it had all my money in it, which was just $100. Lord, I needed that money to buy groceries and pay my bills. So God, I'm asking you, can you send me A hundred dollars. Well, the postal worker read that and he felt a tug at his heart. He thought, wow, this is pitiful. I've got to help this little old lady. So he took the letter back to the post office and he showed it to his buddies and he decided to take up a collection. And as he went around and got cash money from his friends, totaled it up, it was $96. And he thought, wow, that's pretty good. So he put it in an envelope and he mailed it back to Edna. Well, about a week went by. And Edna wrote another letter to God. The same post office worker picked it up. He opened it up. Here's what it read. Dear God, how can I ever thank you for what you did for me? Because of your gift of love, I was able to buy groceries and pay my bills. By the way, God, there was $4 missing. I think it might have been those crooks down at the post office. Sincerely, Edna... You talk about a situation backfiring. That's exactly what happened to Paul in this arena here at the temple in Acts chapter 21. You know the old saying, don't you, that no good deed goes unpunished. I heard my daddy say that about a million times. I truly believe that Paul's heart was in the right place. There are some commentators, you read this passage and they say, Paul was in sin here. Paul was compromising. He was out of the will of God. But I think that Paul was trying to make the best of a bad situation. But here's an interesting factoid that I noticed as I studied this week. If you know anything about the book of Acts, this isn't the first fight that Paul had been involved in. In fact, if you count, this is the sixth riot that... Paul incites in the book of Acts. Here's a slide coming up on your screen. Look at this. Paul had a similar mob 
attack in Lystra, chapter 14, verse 19. Philippi, chapter 6, verse 22. Thessalonica, chapter 17, and verse 5. Berea, 17, 13. And Ephesus, chapter 19, and verse 29. Everywhere that Paul went to preach the gospel, he faced an angry mob. So this day in Jerusalem, he was already used to it. Uh, this is just business as Usual. I think for Paul, the persecution that he faced was confirmation. Hey, the devil's fighting me. I must be doing something right. And I see in this text an important lesson that we need to learn. That is when you decide that you're going to preach the gospel and you decide that you're going to serve God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Hey, it's not a matter of if... It's only a matter of when the enemy will rear his ugly head. So don't be stopped when the opposition attacks. Now there's an interesting parallel that Dr. Luke is drawing here in our text between Jesus' suffering and Paul's suffering. For instance, follow me here. And these slides are coming up so you'll notice. Jesus predicted His suffering in Jerusalem three times. Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22, and 2018. And likewise, Paul received three predictions of his coming suffering in Jerusalem. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, Acts 21, 4, and Acts 21, 11. Like Jesus, Paul had followers who tried to discourage him from going to Jerusalem. Like Jesus, Paul declared his readiness to lay down his life for the will of God. Like Jesus, Paul was unjustly arrested on the basis of false accusation. And like Jesus, Paul heard the crowd crying out, Away with Him! Away with Him! And so, it's interesting that in an uncanny way, Paul could really honestly write later in Philippians 3.10 that he knew the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. And friend, if we decide that we're going to follow Jesus, we'll know that same kind of suffering and that kind of persecution and that kind of ridicule and rejection as well. One of Warren Wiersbe's best books has a unique title. Probably one of the best titles I've ever read for a book. The title is, The Bumps Are What You Climb On. And in the opening pages of that book, he explains what that title means. He said, a little boy was leading his sister up a mountain path. And the way was not easy. And the little girl complained, why this ain't no path at all. It's all rocky and bumpy. And the little boy turned to his sister and he said, yeah sis, but the bumps are what you climb on. And here's what Warren Wiersbe added. He said, that's a remarkable piece of philosophy. What do you do with the bumps on the path of life? God doesn't promise to remove the stones from life's path, but He does promise to make them stepping stones and not stumbling blocks. He says, God often doesn't remove the stones and straighten the path. If God did that, why you'd never get to the top if you want to be like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Daniel and David and Jesus or Paul, you have to realize the bumps are what you climb on. And as you walk with Jesus, uh, there's going to be bumps along the way. 
But the bumps are there to humble us. The bumps are there to make us dependent on God. The bumps are there to purify the sin out of our life. The bumps are there to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. And the bumps are there to take us higher to a new place, a new elevation where we've not been with God before. And so you need to see these two lessons so far. Don't be surprised when the obedient are accused. Number two, don't be stopped when the opposition attacks. And then thirdly, as I finish tonight, and maybe this is the most important Don't be silent when opportunity arises. Don't be silent when opportunity arises. Now the amazing thing about Paul is that he had the incredible ability to see an opportunity in a bad situation. He always could take a negative and turn it into a positive. The crowd, the mob that had gathered out there in Jerusalem, had not come that day to hear Paul preach. They come to kill him. But Paul turns the situation around on them and he realizes, oh my goodness, now I have an audience to preach to. Look at what happens Acts 22. Brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear witness to me, from then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them into bonds of Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Stop right there. We don't have in the interest of time to read the rest of Paul's testimony. But do you see what has happened here? Uh, Notice often that we can't control the circumstances. Uh, We can't control what people might say about us. But we can always be looking uh, for the chance to point people to Jesus. Notice what Paul did. Paul stood up. He said, listen folk, uh, some of you know me. Uh, You've heard things about me. But the time has come for me to set the record straight. Uh, Let me tell you about who I really am and about what God has done in my life. See, some of you think you know me. Some of you have heard bits and pieces of my story. But I'm here today to tell you what Jesus did for me on the road to Damascus. I was on the way to persecute and kill. And He came down and zapped me. And I want you to know I'm changed. I'm not the same old boy I was. What you heard about me probably ain't true. Because Jesus came down and touched me. And I ain't never 
never got over it since. Uh, that's the Candler redneck interpretation, by the way. You see, friend, what you have to notice here, it may be the adversity that provides the platform that we have been waiting for. Man, I wish somebody could hear my story. I wish somebody could know what God has done for me. So what does God do? He sends you through adversity, and it's in the adversity that He creates the environment where people are now ready to listen and say, what do they have to say? What is it about this person that they just keep soldiering on through beating and pain and persecution and bad times? What is it about them? You see, friend, your story is a lot more powerful than you might think. God has given every one of His redeemed children a testimony to share. It may not be as dramatic as some, but hey, there's no other story just like yours. The world is going to try and slander you into silence. The enemy's going to try and take your voice through hardship and persecution and suffering. But I'm telling you today that the most powerful testimonies are the ones that are told in the midst of a storm when ministry has gone sideways and the bottom's fallen out of life and there ain't no light and there's no answers. It's that testimony that'll preach. You see, the gospel has the greatest effectiveness when life has gone sideways. When your life is falling apart. When it didn't go the way you planned. When the situation doesn't add up. And yet you still can rise up and say, Let me tell you about my God. You see, when you've been belittled and beaten and bloodied by life, and you can stand up and say, Hey, everything about my situation is bad. But let me tell you about how good my Jesus is. The world can take my life, but they can't touch my salvation story. Uh, you think my situation looked bad now? Uh, you should have seen me before Jesus came along and touched me and redeemed me uh, through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safely thus far. And grace will lead me home. Praise God. It was the adversity that gave Him the audience. It was the suffering that led to the soapbox and the sermon. Could it be, friend, that the opposition you are facing is actually your opportunity? Moses preached to Pharaoh Elijah spoke to Ahab. Daniel told the truth to Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus stood before Pilate and Paul now before an angry mob. Maybe that opposition is the opportunity that God is now presenting. What's that opposition in your life? Is it an unbelieving spouse? The workplace atheist? The hard-hearted friend? The wayward son or daughter? Is it that sick bed? Is it that unemployment? Is it that sudden loss? I pray that God will open the door for you, that you'll see the opportunity, and that God is in hell and His Holy Spirit will give you the holy boldness to speak up and don't be silent and speak about the name of Jesus. Now, what happened to Paul's testimony? Oh, they come running down to the altar and they got saved by the droves and they baptized 3,000 that day. Is that what happened? I wish. 
verse 22. Look at this. Chapter 22. And upon this word they listened to Him. They raised up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. And the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you to do about this? For this man is a Roman citizen. If the centurion had not stepped in, I believe they would have stomped the life out of Paul that day. But Paul gave his testimony. And notice... Did the Spirit fall? Hmm. Where's the converts at? None that we know of. In fact, they said, get this guy out of here. He don't even deserve to live. Here's what I learned about that. Our call is obedience. God handles the outcome. The most important thing is that we are obedient to share what Christ has given us and let Him handle the result. Paul is now in chains. His career as a prisoner has now begun, but little did he know how God was working in all of this. Because his arrest would fulfill a great dream of his, and that is to go to Rome. And Paul would get to go to Rome as a prisoner, and along the way, we're going to notice all the illustrious and important people that he gets to preach to, which he wouldn't have got to preach to if he was a free man. And in the process, as he's going down that long way to Rome to die, you know what he's doing? He's writing letter after letter after letter of encouragement to the church. And that's why we have a New Testament to preach from today. You see, that opposition may be that great opportunity coming in disguise. Randy Alcorn tells a story in one of his books about Eric Liddell. The Flying Scotsman, the man of Olympic fame, when he won the gold medal in 1924, he went on to be a missionary in China. When World War II broke out, the Japanese invaded China, and Eric and his family were in a hot zone. So Eric sent his wife and his kids back home, and, and he stayed. Well, he was eventually captured by the Japanese. He was imprisoned and put in a squalid concentration camp. And sadly, at the age of 43, Eric Liddell died from a brain tumor just a few days before the Americans came in and liberated the camp. It's one of the great mysteries of God's sovereignty. Why did this giant in the faith die so soon? It seems that as you read that story and you hear about it, you think, well, gosh... He was robbed of so many great opportunities to be effective. Here's what Randy Alcorn says about the rest of the story. He said, One day while on a trip in England, I got to spend a day with a lady named Margaret Holder. Margaret was born in China to missionary parents. In 1939, when Japan took over China, soldiers separated 13-year-old Margaret from her parents and imprisoned her for six years. Margaret 
told several stories that day about a godly man who tutored her and other children, who organized Bible school, who taught them God's Word, and who led her to the Lord. His name was Eric Liddell. He said Liddell's presence in that camp was heartbreaking from one perspective, but it was God's opportunity of a lifetime for him. He said, viewed from that perspective, we can see that our sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that Christ will reveal. And friend, what was true of Paul is true of Eric Liddell and is true of you and I today. Uh, When you know that you are doing God's will, you can be assured that He'll take that opposition and turn it into that great opportunity to speak the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this night. We thank You for this Word. and God, we pray and ask that it would be a challenge and a blessing to those who have heard. We pray, God, that we would not be dismayed when people talk. That we would not be discouraged when opposition rears its ugly head. But Lord, that we would stand up and stiffen our spine and raise our voice and use the opportunity to declare Jesus to a lost and dying world. We pray for that lost person who's watching tonight. Lord, if they don't know you, may they repent and turn to Jesus as their only hope. We ask this prayer in His name. Amen.